Hello and welcome to Breaking Social. I'm Alex. And I'm Joe. And we're the founders of award-winning marketing agency, Campfire. In our new podcast series, we sit down with a guest to unpick their business journey and find out their secrets to success in branding and marketing. Rory Sutherland is the Vice Chairman of Ogilvy UK, one of the oldest and most respected advertising and marketing agencies in the world. Rory is particularly interested in behavioural science when it comes to marketing, and his views on data and creativity will provide lessons to a lot of people when it comes to building campaigns. It may seem a bit odd that we're starting this conversation out with the subject of train travel, but hear us out. Rory has a very out-of-the-box approach to day-to-day behaviours, and so has combined this with his passion for travel to co-author a book called Transport for Humans. It's about how we should rethink travel, which leads us into an in-depth conversation about the way we should approach our marketing efforts to maximise on results. Also, just a heads up, this episode is explicit. If we want to start with Transport for Humans, I think you you speak a lot about behavioural science in general, but I'm interested in why you, because you've spoken a lot about behavioural science, what made transport the best vehicle for getting your points about data and not using measurable uh, metrics as much? Yeah, I I think transport is always of interest because it's a complex system, but it's kind of comprehensibly complex in that there is complexity. You know, patently no one can claim that uh, transport networks, whether road networks or rail networks, are purely simple. Uh, you know, there is a high degree of interconnectedness, if you like, uh, in looking at solutions. And and also, for some strange reason, both Pete and I, it's not an uncommon thing, are kind of train nerds and, and general travel nerds. And one of the things that always fascinated me is it. I always think if you can combine two enthusiasms, um, it's a very, very rich field for innovation because you have two things you're obsessed with which overlap but where you bring a unique obsession with transport into behavioral science and a unique focus on behavioral science into transport it's rather like the origin of behavioral economics itself which came about simply i think partly by accident because the amos tversky and daniel kahneman being psychologists at stanford shared a coffee room with the economics faculty And I'm always very conscious of the fact that the most interesting stuff now emerges at the intersection of disciplines rather than within them. And transport's particularly interesting because it tends to attract the people who work in the transport industry tend to be overwhelmingly male. They tend to be slightly reductionist in their mindset so that, you know, they like things to be cut and dried so that they'll fit into a model. And then they tend to then suffer from what you might call quantification bias. They think the only things that are important are the things you can measure. And in almost everything relating to human psychology, there is a very, very inexact correlation between what scientific instruments measure and what we perceive and how we feel in response. And I mean, I'll I'll give you a lovely example. You know, um, actually, we worry about train punctuality, okay? Punctuality is the great thing that matters with trains. Now, the first thing that annoys me is that train companies are penalised if a train arrives at a London terminus more than three minutes late. But my argument is, I said, look, nobody's inconvenienced by arriving four minutes late because no one makes a journey where they don't build some wiggle room into their schedule. I mean, unless your office is, you know, literally 
10 floors up immediately above the railway station. You've got to allow for other delays and unexpected events, okay? But then the other thing is, depending on what the frequency of train service is, punctuality is either very, very important or irrelevant. So I, I use two stations to get from Seven Oaks into London routinely. One of them is, you don't need the, I'm going to give you the details anyway because I'm a train <laughs> bore. Uh, you know, I use Seven Oaks and I use Otford. Now, at Seven Oaks, there are about four or five trains an hour. I make a conscious effort not to memorize the timetable because my strategy there is turn up at station, catch the next train. The worst thing you'll have to do is wait about 17 minutes. That's absolutely the worst case scenario, in which case you go and buy a cup of coffee. Problem solved. Okay. Now, at Otford, the trains are two an hour. Now, in that case, I do have to aim for a specific train and set out at a particular time. And I do need to know the timetable. And I do get a bit upset if it's late. And so the, the understanding that we optimize transport networks as though passengers were freight. But psychology is so different from logistics as a field of study. And there's so many nonlinear relationships, counterintuitive findings. You know, the, the, the relationship between what transport people are trying to optimize and what humans care about has become completely detached. And I'll give, you, I'll give you a lovely example of this, if you, if you like. You know, one of the things that really annoys me, Euston Station is not a great place at the best of times, and this bloody business of preparing train, okay? Now, I would prefer to have a train that was considerably slower, but where you could board it 15 minutes before it left. Because once I'm on the train, I'm happy. I've got my seat, I've got my laptop plugged in. You know, I know nobody else is going to nick my seat or anything like that. You know, I can spread out, get on with a bit of work, and then 15 minutes later, the train starts moving. Hunky-dory, happy as Larry. But no, they don't do that, okay? They'll spend billions on high-speed one to reduce travel time, but they feel, no, which is the best bit of the journey. The bit on the train is the really nice bit of the trip, right? Whereas the shit, they, they will waste 15 minutes of my time at Euston Station while they put on the sign Platform 7 preparing train or keeping the platform secret until the last minute, which wastes 20 minutes of my time hanging around a pretty dystopian station. And they'll do that without any compunction at all because the, their measure of punctuality has no connection with my measure of utility or comfort. I think this was one of the really interesting points that you'd made on your TED Talk and that you've been... You've been champions for I suppose for almost 10 years probably before you even did that TED talk in your commentary on the amount that they were going to spend on the HS2 versus what you would do with about one tenth of the budget well I mean yeah so I'll give you two examples here which are quite useful my joke was that they spend six billion increasing the speed of the Eurostar even though to be honest if you wanted to compete with airlines even when the Eurostar was three hours long a significant number of people basically took the train to Paris rather than flying and my argument was the reason they were taking the train rather than flying was not about the duration of the journey. It was the quality of time experienced on the journey. On the Eurostar in central London or Ebbsfleet, you plonk your ass on train, enjoy journey, either productively or through watching online or recorded entertainment from Netflix, eat, you know, the finest wines known to humanity, arrive in central Paris. It's infinitely preferable to air travel, which although it's faster while you're traveling, significantly faster, okay, air travel achieves a speed which rail travel practically can't through the laws of physics. It's very low quality time because you go to airport, 
airport then to check in luggage, luggage to security barrier, security barrier to lounge, lounge to shops, shop to gate, wait at gate, board plane. Then you're whisked to Paris at 600 miles an hour for 42 minutes. And then the arseholery begins all over again at the other end. Now, my joke suggestion, well, my serious suggestion was, would, might it not be better to put Wi-Fi on the trains? before you spend £6 billion making the journey shorter, because then you would significantly improve the quality and productivity of the outbound journey. You're probably going to be pissed on the way back, but you significantly improve the quality and utility and productivity of an outbound journey, okay, for literally a rounding error compared to spending £6 billion on new tracks. And then I made the joke suggestion. I said you could employ all of the world's top female and male supermodels for about a billion dollars. You could employ them to walk up and down the train handing out free Chateau Petrus and vintage champagne to all the passengers. You would have saved yourself five billion pounds and people would ask for the trains to be slowed down. And the point is that it was a joke, but it was still the case that they'd spent six billion pounds building High Speed One, which is a very good, very good service because the domestic service is very useful for reasons I'll talk about later. Okay, not saying it's a bad idea. Okay, what I'm saying is weird. Is it was ten years after they'd spent six billion on High Speed One that they put Wi-Fi on the Eurostar trains, and that's the wrong way around. They've since upgraded the Eurostar trains to make them feel much less comfortable. So there's this arid, sterile kind of environment inside the carriages, even at the most expensive class of travel, which again destroys, some, you know, as humans, we're part utilitarian and we're part romantic, okay? And the romantic component of the Eurostar, which is when the interiors were, I think, designed by some French Johnny, you know, someone like Pierre Cardin or someone like that, they were actually pretty plush and oogy. And now they're kind of Teutonic and minimalist and, you know, seats that look like bloody ironing boards, you know. And that's, again, is, you know, I'm sure you get in three extra seats per carriage as a result of making the seats rather dismal. But that's not necessarily what humans care about. And so another example would be this, okay, which is that I made the point perfectly seriously that I said, you can, re you can reduce my journey time between London and Manchester by 40 minutes, just as High Speed 2 promises to do, but I can do it for about a quarter of a million pounds. And everybody said, you're talking absolute rubbish. You know, okay, this is total nonsense. I said, no, it's not. I said, every time I travel to Manchester, even on business, when I'm claiming the ticket, I buy an advance ticket, okay? That means I can't afford to miss that train because if I do, I will basically forfeit the advance ticket I bought and then have to pay full fare first class, which is about a billion pounds, okay? I, you know, I bought my 70 quid or 50 quid advance first ticket, saver ticket to Manchester, happy with that. I've now got to arrive at Euston 40 minutes before the train leaves, because I come from Kent. Even if you came from another part of London, you'd have to leave, you know, 45 minutes leeway, you know, buffer room. So in the time I'm bumming around at... Euston, two trains, 20 and 40 minutes before my own, leave for Manchester half empty. Now, all you need to do is create an app. And SeatFrog have done this, by the way, in the last couple of months. Create an app where I say, look, Mr. Branson, although it's no longer Virgin Trains anymore, so it's, it, it's Avanti, but I'm, you get my point, OK? I'm already at Euston. And the, and the train company can go, well, if you want to board the train that's leaving in five minutes, just pay us a fiver and you can have seat J8. 
They've earned an extra fiver. They've improved their yield management because you should always allow people to board earlier trains where capacity permits, okay? I won't get into the intricacies of kind of yield management. Can't allow people to take later trains than the one they've booked. But if there's spare capacity on an earlier train, you should always allow people to take it. And the current mode of ticketing doesn't allow you to do that because they're trying to prevent you from downgrading from a full fare ticket, which nobody buys because it costs a billion pounds, okay? Now, the point I'm making is you would have reduced my journey time by 40 minutes, you would have made five quid, and the app would have cost you about a quarter of a million pounds to design. Now, all I'm saying is that if you look at journey time purely as train departure to train arrival, yes, that doesn't make any difference. But that's not the part of the journey I dislike. The part of the journey I dislike is the totally wasted time at Euston Station. And I said this to someone quite senior at the rail industry, and I made this suggestion. He said, yeah, but if we do this, we'll, we'll reduce retail sales at Euston. And I said, hold on a second. I, I didn't realise we were spending 80 billion on a high-speed two to prop up Oliver fucking bonus. Right, you know, right. I'm sure I'm sure there are cheaper ways of subsidizing the Oliver bonus at Euston Station than building a bloody railway line and then making people to wait. Now nobody's asked this question about high speed two. What sort of ticketing flexibility will there be to maximize capacity? Because you patently improve the capacity of a railway line if you allow people to board earlier trains where there is spare capacity, because you free up capacity which might be needed on a later train. EasyJet know this. They, if you actually get to Prague or whatever and you arrive at the airport insanely early, they'll say, actually, you're flying back to Gatwick, but there's a seat on the Luton flight in 40 minutes. Okay, So you can have that if you want, because then it gives them a chance of, of, of selling another ticket on the Gatwick flight, because they know they're not going to sell the ticket on the Luton flight. Very, very good yield and revenue management. Very, very good capacity management. Okay, Yet nobody's asked any questions. Now, a large part of the overcrowding on the London to Manchester trains is found on the first off-peak ticket of the day. The first off-peak train of the day is disproportionately overcrowded. Okay, Because people are trying to game the system, like those people who hover outside the London congestion zone. until it, And the congestion charge, I think, applies all the time now but there used to be this weird row of traffic it's you know like five to six on the road leading out to canary wharf which was people just waiting until the congestion charge was lifted now you know if you had smoother pricing right you wouldn't have that overcrowding problem if you gave people the flexibility to travel on an earlier train where capacity permits you wouldn't have that problem and yet all the thought goes into what you might call the banausic engineering questions around the journey and not the question of the customer experience. It's exactly the same. Sat-navs make the same mistake. They always route you on the fastest journey. Now, what you notice as a human is if you're familiar with the journey, you quite often override your sat-nav in that you go, yes, I know that route is five minutes quicker, but I'd rather take the slower route where I keep moving than the route where I'm stationary for 10 minutes. Okay, or the stressy route. Or if you're going to an airport, you go, I don't want the fastest route. I want the route with the lowest variance. Because the problem of taking a motorway to an airport is that it's faster on average. But if a semi jackknifes at Clackett Lane services, you're stuck there for an hour and a half and you miss your flight. If you go on the A road, there's a plan B, which is to turn off the A road or to turn round and go back or to, you know, or to reroute yourself across country lanes. You'll still make the plane. Okay, so we factor in all these nuances in our own human decision making 
which the mathematicized model is completely blind to. It looks at average speed. Yes, the motorway is faster. I'm not interested in the average speed. I'm interested in the variance. And so a lot of the nuance of human decision-making, which is often derided by people as irrational, is actually a very subtle form of meta-intelligence. And I'm just interested in how how has your career sort of led to this point? If we can talk to if if we can talk a little bit about your entry into this field of behavioural science and your work at Ogilvy, how did right, you? That's, how that's was your a very sort of... simple story, which is I just I mean I was convinced I started as a graduate trainee in Ogilvy and Mather Direct, which was the direct marketing direct response wing of Ogilvy and Mather. It had been launched by David Ogilvy as Ogilvy and Mather Direct Response, and it specialised in the form of advertising where you actually replied. Uh, to advertisements and therefore the responses were measurable and testable. You could test one advertisement against another in what was called an A-B split or you could send out mail packs to random selections of people and see which creative approach or media approach worked better. Okay? So you could test and optimise. It was kind of Darwinian advertising, if you like, variation and selection. And very quickly, I I was learning then at the feet of a guy called Drayton Bird who was the great doyen still is really the doyen of British direct marketing he's in his 80s now and he was teaching us all these very interesting findings about what works what doesn't work in terms of persuading people whether in an off-the-page press ad with a coupon or a piece of direct mail or a telephone call or anything of that kind and it very quickly became apparent to me through the testing we did that economics was completely wrong about its model of how humans really think decide and act And and so when I finally discovered, first of all, economics and then behavioral economics, uh, I finally felt there was kind of epiphany here because finally people all over the place, including some fairly reputable academics, including the odd Nobel Prize winner, had actually paid some attention to the fact that the way people really decide and what motivates them to decide is not the simple price utility equation that economics assumes for the purposes of mathematical neatness. And I think that assumption and all the other assumptions of economics, perfect trust, stable preferences, transitive preferences, you know, the idea that we feel the same spending a dollar regardless of what we're spending the money on, as it were. It it, it occasions an equal unit of psychological cost regardless of context. All those assumptions are so wrong that I think economics is always in danger of becoming just a rogue branch of applied mathematics. I remember you making a point about the fact that, and I don't know where this data came from, but it was that using a contactless payment system feels about 20% cheaper than paying in cash, which I found really, really interesting. Richard Shotton, I think, and the author of The Choice Factory, who you must interview, is probably one of the people behind that. Uh, There are quite a few findings around payment, which is cash feels disproportionately expensive. I think credit cards feel more expensive. You also find that if you have a cash box... Uh, at a cathedral where visitors can make a donation and you simply put the MasterCard and Visa logos somewhere within sight of the cash box, the average level of donations goes up because the presence of a credit card symbol kind of resets your mental thermometer around, um, or barometer around cost to a kind of 15, 20-pound level, whereas when you only see coins, you're thinking around the 1, 2, 3-pound level. So I think you get more fivers if you show a, a kind of Visa and MasterCard logo. There's some finding there as well. So d- just a, a question from me. Am I right in thinking uh, then that your approach to using data is oftentimes finding the balance between 
to which point you use that data the, the and to shit which point. That, okay, first of all, the data can totally mislead you. The shit that matters half the time isn't in the goddamn data. If you do use data, you'd be better off looking for peculiarities and exceptions and Simpson's paradoxes and counterintuitive findings than looking for averages, okay? Averages are really, really dangerous because the act of averaging and the act of consolidation actually probably disguises the most interesting information that's there, which is at the extremes or the anomalies. But also, I wrote this piece for management today about this, right? So John Lewis in Tunbridge Wells closed, closes down. Now, I'm a big fan of a book called Obvious Adams, which is a 1924, 1926 book, something like that, I mean 1916, come to think of it, about a guy who solves business problems by going and spotting the obvious things which are beneath the dignity of senior management to notice. And so, for example, Obvious Adams spots that the reason a department store is failing is because the door's in the wrong place. You know, the door isn't where everybody's walking. It's it's actually around the corner. And so people look at the shop. They go, I'd like to go in there. But then they can't find the entrance. OK, banal shit like that. But banal shit like that, I mean, can make or break a business. Easy. I mean, you know, surprisingly trivial things, behavioral components can destroy a business. And so when the John Lewis in Tunbridge Wells closed down and went bust and they shuttered the whole thing, I went and did an obvious Adams. It didn't share a car park with any other store. So you had to make it a specific journey. Okay, The entrance to the car park was only accessible conveniently to people who were leaving the retail park in which it was based. And the sign announcing the entrance to John Lewis was in completely the wrong place. So by the time you'd seen it, it was too late to turn off. OK, finally, it was called not John Lewis or mini John Lewis. It was called John Lewis at home. So for five years, my wife and I basically assumed it sells furniture. We're not in the market for a sofa at the moment, so we won't go in. Five years after it opened, we actually went there, possibly because we were looking for a sofa and discovered it sold tellies, computers, digital radios. I mean, shit that blokes actually buy. Right. The only thing it didn't sell was like women's apparel and cosmetics, which frankly don't interest me anyway okay so they could have called it john lewis for blokes and it would have been less off-putting than calling it john lewis at home but if you see home home base home sense etc you tend to assume it's furnishings in some shape or form it's nothing of the kind it was practically everything the other thing was that john lewis was rectangular but the frontage was along the narrow side so it looked much much smaller than it really was now none of those factors appear on a database anywhere so someone now could be looking at the data and decide that Tunbridge Wells, which is fucking minted as a town, is somehow insufficient to support a branch of John Lewis. And they could be making a completely confident, seemingly robust decision that Tunbridge Wells does not equal John Lewis when the real reason lies outside the realm of quantification or measurement. Because there isn't an item on the database for really fucking shit signage, right? And so I, I never throw away information, right? I'm not, I'm not going to say, oh, data, it's a load of bollocks. But the faith that's invested in it, which is the idea that if only you have enough data, you will be able to answer every question definitively and optimally and without recourse to imagination or inquiry, Strikes me as the biggest load of old nonsense. The other thing to remember is all big data comes from the same place, right? The past. Therefore, by definition, data is unrepresentative, okay? Because it merely comes from a past which was once one of many possible futures. When the world changes, when taste changes, optimizing on the past 
is actually a dangerous idea. It gets you by on the short term, okay? But over-optimizing on the past rather than actually investing and exploring the future, and you'll know this as mathy nerds, you presumably know the exploit-explore trade-off that crops up in AI and animal foraging. There's a trade-off between exploiting what you already know and exploring what you don't. And that trade-off in certain kinds of decision-making is unavoidable. You can optimize the trade-off, but you have to make the trade-off. So what will happen is it will cause people to try and over-exploit by over-optimizing on the past. In the short term, you'll do quite well. But in the long term, you'll actually end up completely wrong-footed. Mm -hmm. And just maybe bringing those and that information into a world that might be sort of more relatable business for all people, Business people are desperate for the illusion of certainty, partly because it, you know, it stops people having to think and we're cognitive misers, but also because if you can create a model and seem to have solved it with a single right answer, you won't be held responsible for the outcome because we have this weird notion that quality of, quality of reasoning is a proxy for quality of outcome, and it isn't. You can come up with really good reasons and you'll fail, and you can do something stupid and you succeed. Okay, Red Bull is a stupid idea. Dyson is a stupid idea. Five Guys is a stupid idea. There was no evidence to support the existence of those businesses before they tried it and found that it worked. This is where we need... Uh, there, there are basically two schools in economics. There's the Hayekian Austrian school, which sees capitalism and competition as a discovery mechanism. And there's the mainstream economic school, which sees economics as an efficiency and competition as an efficiency optimization mechanism. And the Hayekians, the Austrians, say, no, no, you, you know, this is an illusion. I think they call it the pretense of knowledge is the great Hayek phrase, right? You don't know any of this stuff. To some extent, what you've got to do is try things in a Darwinian way is variation and selection. And the future will be so different from the past in many, many respects. I mean, interestingly, OK, a perfect example of this is as soon as the corona crisis hit, every single airline had to turn off their pricing algorithms and start pricing manually. And you think, why is that? And the answer is they'd grown up in a world where if you drop the price of a flight, more people wanted to get on board. Okay? They suddenly found themselves in a world where maybe 2% of the world's population would pay anything to get on a flight, and the other 98% wouldn't get on a plane if you put a gun to their head. Right? And so a change in context, a change in competitive context, a change in you know, the competitive environment, a change in consumer behavior, a change in consumer taste can render everything you know completely redundant. So it's completely unsafe to think that you can proceed into the future without performing some acts of hypothesis. So wh where do you think brands should move forward in, in this new world and combine that concept of new ideas and data? Because I feel like no one's ever going to really let go of data because it is that safety net. Yeah, I mean, the trouble with data, the trouble with data is data leads to quantification bias because the only data that aggregates is numerical data. And the most important things aren't always necessarily contained within data. There's a wonderful Jeff Bezos quote when he says, uh, when the data and the anecdotes disagree, I tend to go, I tend to trust the anecdote. The other thing, the other thing with data-driven metrics is once you accept they're a proxy, which they mostly are, there are attempts to get closer, things like, you know, um, passenger satisfaction, you know, customer satisfaction surveys, this kind of thing. Okay, um, but nonetheless, when data is a proxy, people game the system and they start pursuing the metric, not the objective. And you see that all over the place. So the other great problem with numer numerical targets, numerical measures, 
This is, I think, called Goodhart's law, isn't it? That any metric that becomes a target loses its value as a metric because the act of pursuing the target distorts the metric. And so what I'm not doing here for one second is dissing really good statisticians. The problem with really good statisticians is they're outnumbered about 30 to 1 by shit statisticians. And virtually everything you read in the newspapers, which has a statistical base, the journalists don't really understand what's going on. Okay, But because it's a statistic, they have a confidence in that, because they, you know, which they would never actually attach to an anecdote. And so it's a way of making credible bad information if we're not careful. Or, or, or misinterpreting information because, you know, a confounding... I'll give you an, a very simple example of this, OK? People, people who, um, you know, voted to leave the European Union tended to be older and they were less likely to be university graduates. OK, so it's old, stupid people. But old people are vastly less likely to be university graduates, right? Because going to university in 1955 actually meant shit, right? OK, <laughs> right? It was a highly unusual thing to do. Right. So older people, by definition, aren't university graduates because there weren't many universities there for them to graduate from. So those kind of that kind of bullshit that emerges from that is really, really quite alarming because it's very, very easy. I mean, we know these things from legal cases, the prosecutor's fallacy. Uh, you know, you can actually present statistics in a way that sounds like convincing information uh, when it's fundamentally wrong. I don't know if you know the famous case. OK, O.J. Simpson. OK which is they said, OK, you're using this evidence that he had been abusive towards his wife and his wife had earlier called the police because the husband had uh, beaten her up. And you're saying this is likely evidence that he was therefore her murderer. Well, we've got statistics here that show of all the cases of domestic violence that are reported to the police, only 1% of them or 4% of them or 2% of them lead to murder. So we regard this as very weak evidence. And you're, you're probably going, as I might have done, if I was sitting on the jury, I'd be going, mm, OK, fair point, OK. But it's statistically bollocks, because the fact was she was already dead, right? <laughs> OK, and she had been murdered. And the question you actually ask is, in a case where someone who's been subjected to domestic violence, who ends up murdered, OK, what is the likelihood that the person who subjected her to that prior violence is the person who killed her? And the odds are like 92% or something, right? So you can take the same information and presented in two different ways and you know this is the problem which is that it, it, it statistics are a great way of inculcating an extraordinary degree of confidence in fairly intelligent people where a significant proportion of the time you can actually be wrong are there any is there any times that you can remember where you've in your in your career where you've brought this information into a sort of tangible example that you you'd be able to uh, give us in a with a brand that you're able to talk about yeah, um, one of the things I one of the things I would recommend doing with a database, by the way, which sounds utterly ridiculous, is don't analyse it, read it. Get a cross section of the data on, uh, let's say, a thousand customers. That's a weekend's work. Well, maybe ten thousand customers. I don't know. Okay, that's a weekend's work. Go and read it. Your brain might come up with more interesting and revealing patterns than any kind of weird. What would you normally put it through? You put it through one of those strange uh, regression models or whatever, right? Okay. And the reason is your brain is pretty good at pattern recognition and it knows what it's like to be a human. So uh, it would go, oh, they're doing that. And then they're doing that immediately afterwards. Well, oh, I see. They're doing that because they did. Th oh, right. Okay. I get it. Right. And you've now got a bit of causality. You can hypothesize a bit of causality alongside the correlation. So just get some data and read the fucking stuff. I once read the parcel force database. It was really, really interesting. Okay. Why don't you do that? 
this assumption that everything that effectively bypasses the human brain, okay, in the process of decision making, improves decision making, is completely whack. We've, we've got a million years of evolved experience in working out what the shit is going on when presented with a human social problem or dilemma. You know, why throw that away? What it is, it's the urge to freeze creativity or imagination or speculation out of the decision-making process in the interest of making it more pure. But various people, Aristotle, okay, who kind of, this is, I'm grateful to Roger L. Martin for talking about this. Aristotle, who kind of invented science, right? Okay, I'm probably a bit extreme, but you know, you get the point. Okay, he said, you can use this scientific method in cases like the behavior of physical objects. The laws are such, the laws of physics are such that things cannot be other than they are. Okay, you drop a stone, it's going to fall to the ground. Things cannot be other than that. So the one question that I ask every guest that I'm going to ask you now is, um, what one trait do you see within yourself that you feel without you wouldn't succeed? Oh, uh, I, I'm afraid I'm going to say it's two trays and, and you need them both, which is in my own particular case, uh, it's a it's a slightly unusual combination of creativity of wild imagination and nerdiness. I, okay, I could, if you want me to give one trait, it's curiosity at the end of the day. Mm. Because I, I'm curious about what is, but I'm also curious about what could be. You know, I, I'm curious about why people don't do things. Uh, you know, why did nobody use, why does nobody use moist lavatory paper? Why does nobody have a Japanese toilet? Why does nobody, you know, there are certain things which are obvious in retrospect, but where there's this weird barrier to adoption. Mm. And so generally being curious, but but being curious about a mixture of things from the fairly nerdy, you know, uh, to the, you know, deeply um, whimsical, I think is probably, if you had to narrow it down to one thing, it has to be that. Well, that's what I look for in my kids, to be honest. If they're curious, they're fine. Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Social. Make sure you subscribe to us so you're notified when an episode drops. And if you want to keep up with what we're doing at Campfire, make sure to follow us on the socials in the show notes. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode. 